Hi, I'm Dr. Scott. And I'm Dr. Shiloh. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the Forensic Psychology and True Crime Podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. And today's episode is on the forensic psych topic of schizoid and schizotypal personality disorders. Well, welcome back, everyone, to LA Not So Confidential. How are you doing, Dr. Scott? Great. Great. Good. Lots of exciting stuff coming up during the holiday season, right? I know. We are cruising right along here. So we have your first December episode for you today. Back to the hard diagnostics of psychology. But before that, we want to remind everyone that our Patreon holiday virtual party is Saturday, December 16th. There's still time to join Patreon. So you can join at any level and get your invite. And it's always a good time. We always have a great group. I guess we better start thinking about what we're going to do and what we're going to talk about. <laughs> right. And prizes uh, and whatever, yeah. whatever what we want to hang out. Yeah. Exactly. So again, that's going to be on Saturday, December 16th. That is always in lieu of a live stream. So there won't be a behind the couch this month. And we will be doing that again in January. But if you can join Patreon and we'll see you on our little Zoom holiday party. Absolutely. Also, big news that we alluded to in the past, but want to reinforce it is we want to let you know that CrimeCon UK, the ultimate true crime event and our perspective as well as many others is returning to london september 21st and 22nd 2024 crime con uk is the world's leading true crime event and is partnered by true crime the expert-led channel previously known as cbs reality available on your platform of choice from fascinating sessions with some of the biggest names in true crime to raising a glass with your favorite podcasters crime con uk is an unforgettable way for you to really immerse yourself into the true crime community this time around tickets will include free-flowing tea, coffee, and biscuits, the sweet and lovely kind that we call cookies, and of course, flavored water throughout the whole weekend. That's a big deal, very convenient. And there's going to be plenty of time to network with crime contributors. And the benefits for VIP ticket holders have also been completely overhauled, giving them exclusive access and far more bang for their buck. We will be there. So come and join us and use the code confidential for your special 10% discount. The more of our listeners that use our code, the more it helps us pay for our trip and accommodations. So please don't forget to use the confidential code for 10% off. Head over to crimecon.co.uk to book your tickets today. All right. So last week we released a bonus episode for you. It was our behind the couch live stream conversation with Dr. Melissa Tackett Gibson. And she is a researcher studying characteristics and lived experiences of true crime consumers. So if you haven't watched that on YouTube yet, hopefully you enjoyed hearing it on the regular feed. But our last original episode released was episode 160, and that was a documentary review of Last Call When a Serial Killer Stalked Queer New York. That was a four-part docuseries streaming on Max. This very well-produced series focused on a serial killer in the early 1990s in New York who systematically and brutally murdered a number of gay men. The documentary does a beautiful job lifting the victims' lives out of the true crime narrative, which you and I always really like while also laying out really the incompetence and indifference of the investigators at the time. So please make sure you guys have listened to that as well. But let's get into today's topic. All right, folks. So this week, we really are centering into the psychology and a juxtaposition of crime in a way that we've done a few times before. But we're really going to get into some academics that we're pulling into layman's terms as much as we can. But this is really fascinating stuff because, as usual, when we brought the subject up, it kind of took us in a different direction than we were expecting. I think it's research that is not paid attention to nearly enough. Absolutely. And Dr. Shiloh, in our presentations moving forward, especially our live presentations, are really going to be looking for these aspects. So what are we talking about? We're talking about an area of personality disorders that include schizoid and schizotypal two diagnoses that kind of sound the same, uh -huh. they're not. When we're talking about the very fascinating topic of personality disorders, cluster B pretty much gets all the attention. And that is the antisocial, the borderline, the narcissistic, the histrionic types. But there are other personality disorders that are so engrossing and tend to fall between the cracks at times because they just don't get a lot of attention. 
Why did they not get a lot of attention? Because cluster B is a mainly attention seeking type of classification. <laughs> Literally screams for the attention. <laughs> Literally, like, look at me, look at me. Even the antisocial has an aspect of that. Whereas cluster A tends to be almost exactly the opposite. And we're, we don't even use clusters anymore. It's just that sure. Shiloh and I come from a period of time in our education where it was significantly divided. Whereas more often now, researchers are looking at it as really a constellation or a spectrum. And I am hesitant even to use the word spectrum because that's a very loaded term mm. within our field at this time. But today we're going to explore those two personality disorders from the cluster A category that have a surprisingly strong connection to criminal acts, schizoid and schizotypal personality disorder. So I want to give you a trigger warning. We are going to be talking about some very disturbing child murders that include drugging, kidnapping and dismemberment, as well as a school shooting and gun violence. We don't, aren't going into the absolute gory details, but I just want to give you a heads up that this is what yeah. we will be touching on. Yes. So first, a little background on etymology here. There's a really interesting evolution of commonly used words into pejoratives that often involves a complex interplay of linguistic and cultural and social factors. The process is gradual and can be influenced by changes in things like social attitudes, shifting cultural norms, and just the appropriation of language for a variety of purposes. And unfortunately, still, the term schizo illustrates this phenomenon. And I hear this, I teach a class on mental health disorders in an academy. And at the beginning, I will say, let's just get all of the layman's terms and jargon that you've ever heard out now, because we're not going to be using them moving forward. And we put them up on the board and schizo, not as much comes up, but usually comes up. I think right. it's phasing out a little bit, but the term schizo is derived from schizophrenia, which we know is a psychiatric disorder characterized by a disintegration of thought processes and emotional responsiveness with notable positive symptoms such as auditory, visual, and tactile hallucinations, as well as delusions. And of course, originally, like many diagnostic or descriptive terms, it was neutral and it was a clinical term used within our field of psychology and psychiatry. So much like the terms imbecile, moron, idiot, and the notorious R word, the term schizo has morphed into a pejorative term widely criticized for perpetuating stigma around mental illness, or even just quirky or otherwise aberrant behaviors. And over time, schizo detached from its clinical roots and now has entered the colloquial language. I would say it entered it. It's a little less than it was maybe yeah. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but still problematic because its appropriation into everyday speech has contributed to its transformation into that pejorative stance with some really negative connotations. For sure. Yeah. When people use schizo informally to describe erratic or unpredictable behavior, it perpetuates again, the negative stereotypes about mental health and can stigmatize individuals with schizophrenia and further contribute to misunderstandings of the disorder in general. So in both cases, referring to schizoid and schizotypal, the transformation of neutral or other clinical terms into pejorative reflects broader shifts in societal attitudes and language usage. Language is very dynamic, as we know, and words can undergo somatic shifts based on cultural and social contexts. And this process highlights how language can be appropriated and divorced from its original clinical context to express negative judgments. And as society becomes more aware of the impact of such language, particularly when it comes to mental health, efforts are made to replace these types of terms with more respectful and inclusive terminology. In this episode, we're talking about two different diagnoses or sets of traits. So let's delve into the clinical distinctions between schizoid and schizotypal personality disorders in a way that's more conversational and narrative. So let me start with a pretty major example from two th in 2011, the gruesome murder and dismemberment of an eight-year-old boy named Libby Kletsky was perpetrated by a 35-year-old white male already known to have a significantly challenging past in regards to mental and emotional health. The killer, a clerk at a hardware supply store, 
lured Levy to his home after the child had become lost while walking home from an Orthodox Jewish day camp. When it became obvious that Levy was not home by the usual time, the Orthodox community spared no efforts in locating him with reports that they conducted searches of up to 5,000 volunteers going door to door in all the homes in the area. Yes. So a break in the investigation revealed that CCTV security cameras that were near the route that Levy took showed him encountering this man outside a retail space occupied by a dentist. Libby spoke with the man briefly and then entered the man's car. Review of the dentist's office records identified the suspect leading the police to his apartment. During the police interview at his apartment, the killer confessed to his actions and showed them the partial remains of Libby. The boy's severed feet, meticulously and individually wrapped in plastic, were found in the freezer carefully placed by a cutting board and three bloodied carving knives, as well as telling police where he had disposed of the rest of the body. The kidnapping and murder was an enormous shock to the Brooklyn Hasidic community, whose neighborhoods are considered quite safe. The cause of Libby's death was later discovered to include the killer's efforts to drug the child with prescription muscle relaxers and an antipsychotic drug, along with two pain medications. While under the influence of these medications, Libby was smothered to death. Details emerged from a court-ordered psychiatric evaluation conducted at Kings County hospital, where during his evaluation, the killer was described as, quote, confused and apathetic, possessing what was termed a practically blank personality. The evaluation shed light on his fractured mental state with conflicting accounts of his life and a history that seemed to be a patchwork of potentially traumatic events, as well as significant mental health issues. He was found to have worked at a hardware store in Brooklyn with various duties that included clerical and register duties. The results of the intake interview and evaluation revealed diagnoses of an adjustment disorder and personality disorder with schizoid features, hinting at the complexity of his psychological makeup. Another vital factor, one that is seen in a number of criminal acts, was the killer's history of a head injury at age nine after being hit by a car while riding his bike. With no prior arrest record other than a seatbelt violation, speeding ticket, and a citation for public urination, the magnitude of this level of his violence against a child victim appeared to just emerge spontaneously. Now, throughout the evaluation, the killer's emotional responses remained elusive, if not fully evasive. His mood was described as neutral, except when probed about the reason for his incarceration. The report, however, provided little insight into the motive for his crime that had shocked the entire community. And eventually, he admitted awareness of the gravity of the charges against him, but he claimed he did not intend to harm the child, citing a moment of panic. His inconsistent accounts of his life, including the number of siblings he had and his mental health history, raised a lot of questions about the reliability of his statements. As the narrative unfolded, it became clear that the killer's interpersonal skills were exceptionally poor. During interviews, he shared various personal personal historical life events and responded to questions with meandering answers that painted a picture of a life of solitude and impulsive decisions, such as a brief marriage after meeting someone online. He worked as a hardware clerk, lived alone in a house owned by his father and stepmother, and spent a significant amount of time online recording karaoke performances. The evaluation also touched on his encounters with what he described as a mysterious voice he heard on a regular basis, a detail that he admitted only after his arrest. The voice, though not commanding him to harm others, added a layer of complexity to his psychological state. The defense team asserted that the killer's psychiatric disorders were the driving factors in his crimes. And then this began the complex and rarely successful positioning of supporting a plea of not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. The evaluation resorted in what I would term an interesting diagnosis, adjustment disorder and a personality disorder with schizoid features. That's interesting to me because I'm curious as to how the evaluators were to establish a baseline from which to frame a mood disorder like adjustment, which is yeah. a relatively mild perspective oh, yeah. on things. So I mean, we all have adjustment disorders. Everybody, like, yeah, you life. don't get out of life without an adjustment no. disorder at some point. So having a personality disorder does imply a level of complexity in a psychological makeup, but I just don't know where the adjustment came from and then how much that played into it. But the revelation of him having a younger sister who by then was deceased had struggles with schizophrenia. So that adds mm. another layer of interest to this narrative, suggesting a potential genetic link to mental health challenges as yeah. if there is schizophrenia or bipolar in a family, there's more 
higher likelihood among siblings to have some or all of the traits. So the killer's appearance at his arraignment was stark. He was disheveled, confused, and pale. The court ordered him held without bail and placed on suicide watch and into protective custody. During the trial, additional details from the investigation and statements from police and prosecutors shared his confession to suffocating Levy with a bath towel. His written confession concluded with a remorseful note, quote, I'm sorry for the hurt that I caused, end quote. The police commissioner expressed the collective anguish and bewilderment of the closely knit Hasidic community, stating it defies all logic. And I think that's what's been so terribly disturbing about this case. There's absolutely no reason. There's just nothing more innocent than an eight-year-old child. And to be killed in this manner is just heartbreaking. So now... After painting that picture, let's get back to a bit more of what we call differential diagnosis. Yes. So as a brief reminder, personality disorders are a group of mental health constellations that are characterized by behaviors and patterns of thinking that are noticeably variant and different from the social norms within the community. Individuals with these disorders have personality and behavioral traits that can make it difficult to function and fit into society. So imagine that you're observing two people in a social setting, and one of them is an individual with schizoid personality disorder or SPD. So picture them at a party. They're quietly standing on the outskirts, seeming perfectly content and just being alone in, or in their solitude. They're not particularly interested in forming connections with the people around them. They're not bothered by the lack of social engagement. In fact, they might prefer it that way, which is very interesting to even use this as a sample because individuals with this type of personality makeup would not be likely to go to a social function True. anyway. But, you know, we have to put it within the context of uh, other people that for, I guess, a baseline. Yeah, oh, this is great. Yeah. So you might notice that they don't express a lot of emotion, even to the point where they would come across as emotionally distant or somewhat detached. Praise and criticism, neither one, don't phase them. It's as if they exist in their own emotional bubble or emotional world. They're not necessarily eccentric or peculiar in their thinking. It's more about a preference for their inner world over social interactions. Okay, that paints a good picture. So now let's shift our attention to someone with schizotypal personality disorder. This individual, let's say at the same party, might stand out a bit more. Not in like a flashy way, but this is going to be the person that's eccentric or has a peculiar manner about them. They could be the one with the unusual belief system, maybe thinking that they have some magical abilities or holding paranoid thoughts. Basically, Dr. Scott. Just, just yeah, <laughs> but like, you know, only at a party, of course. Right, only at a party. <laughs> Let me tell you about the lizard people under Los Angeles. <laughs> you might notice odd speech patterns or behaviors that deviate from the social norm. Unlike the schizoid person, the schizotypal individual might have a deep-seated discomfort with close relationships stemming from a fear of social interactions and a general suspicion of others. So you see how these things are sort of starting to come together. It's not just a preference for solitude. It's more of a pronounced anxiety about these social connections. So consider the schizotypal person sharing a seemingly bizarre story that others find hard to follow, or they might be preoccupied with thoughts that others find peculiar. Okay. Well, here's where I diverge is because I realize when I'm starting to talk some weird stuff and I go, oh, this is, this person's not going to be into my crazy. I'm going to let it go. <laughs> they start, their eyes start looking for a seat yeah, like, over you your can, shoulder. You can see them go <laughs> blank. Like, oh, okay. My tangential ADHD has just really worn them out. So this isn't just a quiet introverted person. It's someone whose thoughts and behaviors veer into the unconventional without necessarily crossing into the territory of full-blown psychotic disorder. So it's right on the edge there. Maybe not right on the edge, but it's getting closer to the edge. Yeah, it's in the same neighborhood, right? Yeah. yeah. So in essence, while both schizoid and schizotypal personality disorders involve this certain shared level of social detachment, the schizotypal individual adds an extra layer of eccentricity and odd thinking into the mix. Like Dr. Shada was saying, it's like comparing a person who enjoys the tranquility of their own company to someone who, in addition to that, brings a touch of quirkiness to the social table. Remember, these are complex clinical conditions, so we really have to work on having a nuanced understanding in order to get the accurate diagnoses. And some researchers 
go so far as to posit that the eccentricities in language and behavior in schizotypal personalities may be more common in artists and specialists in narrow areas. Examples of these could include people like Vincent van Gogh, Albert Einstein, Emily Dickinson, and Isaac Newton. Yeah, gosh, that was a really good way to have our audience kind of picture these presentations. What would the more diagnostic criteria look like? Well, again, they're both part of the cluster A personality disorders of A, B, and C in the DSM or the previous DSM, and the differences are key. So the core features of schizoid personality disorder include a pervasive pattern, a social detachment, limited range of emotional expression in certain social contexts. In social relationships, they can prefer activities that are more solitary or even show a lack of interest in forming close relationships. And this can include family relationships. And interestingly enough, often can seem indifferent to praise or criticism. A great sort of literary trope or entertainment trope that has been used in the past was the idea of the android, a mm. person that is part human, but part mechanical, and doesn't really just have the emotional depth. In fact, we used to say that Mr. Spock from yeah. Star Trek was sort of a presentation of schizoid, but Spock has a whole backstory of, no, they learn to be that way in their society because that's the appropriate way to be is to control your emotions. So individuals with schizotypal personality disorder can appear distant, detached, or emotionally cold with a flattening in their affect. So a flattening in their affect means that they show little or significantly less emotional responsiveness than what is expected in the culture at large. So people like this can present with what we would call depressive symptoms or depressive presentations in experiencing little to no pleasure in activities, events, hobbies that generally bring enjoyment to others. In fact, they don't really have hobbies. They don't really have those things that we generally take for granted that bring us joy, whether it's sitting outside, enjoying a really good cup of coffee, or, you know, just these little kind of moderate life pleasures, they're sort of cut off from that experience. And in terms of thought processes or cognitive structure, these individuals often focus on introspection and have a tendency to be absorbed in their own thoughts. So going back to this, you know, piece kind of linking it to an experience that we see people who are in a depressive episode for those folks, we might, they might have a hobby that brings them joy, but when they're in a depressive episode, they're either not engaging in it or that thing no longer brings them joy for a little bit. Right. right. So, and the term for that would be anhedonia, an inability correct. to take pleasure in things that generally have brought you pleasure in the past. So there's a baseline that was set there. Right. So with this personality disorder, they're just kind of like that all the time. Almost they're just in anhedonia all the time. They have right. nothing that really brings them joy. Got it. So continuing, when we look at schizotypal personality disorder, the core features show a presentation of pervasive patterns of social and interpersonal deficit marked by acute discomfort with and a reduced capacity for close relationships. In many interviews and evaluations, there's often the assertion of no interest in pursuing relationships or even finding any value in them. There's also the issue of eccentricity and the patterns of thought or cognitions. So individuals with schizotypal personality disorder may exhibit odd or eccentric thinking, such again as magical or paranoid beliefs, unusual perceptual experiences, and even odd speech patterns. A very common symptom is the fear of social interaction and may be suspicious of others leading to social isolation. Okay, okay definitely. Well that, not that's me. not me. No, that's not me. <laughs> I will be in your face whether you want me to or not. Hi. <laughs> Let Correct. me tell you about my weirdo beliefs. <laughs> and they may even have unusual beliefs or experiences without necessarily meeting the criteria for a psychotic disorder. Oops, it could be a Dr. Scott again. I, I have <laughs> dribs and drabs of all the personality disorders as everyone else does. It just Guys, depends on the situation. It's we totally tell normal. You, when we do these episodes, you are not to go around diagnosing people. So yeah, including yourself, be really be careful and be kind to yourself when you get on WebMD or when you get on, you know, any kind of pop psychology thing that that terms diagnosis, be, be careful and kind to yourself or your or your podcast partner. <laughs> Thank you. 
So now that we've set that up again, I want to touch back on schizoid personality disorder. So we're going to make up a character, name that individual Robin. So Robin is a person that's diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder, and Robin preferred solitude, avoiding any type of interpersonal contact, including sexual interactions. Unfazed by criticism or praise, Robin expresses minimal emotion and can sometimes create an air of mystery because they lack sometimes the eccentricities that are so obvious in schizotypal. Yeah. Let, let's debunk some of the myths surrounding schizoid personality disorder. Myth number one is that schizoid personality disorder is similar to schizophrenia. Nope, it's not. It's a distinct mental health condition. It shares some of the genetic causes and what we would call the negative symptoms because there's negative and positive symptoms, not negative as in bad versus positive as good. Mm -hmm. We're talking negative as in ability to engage in social activities. The negative symptoms are the ones that bring the individual into an interior experienced life. So the social withdrawal symptoms, certainly there are in schizoid and they don't experience psychosis like others with schizophrenia. I just wanted to point this out because as our first example is attempting to diagnose this individual with schizoid personality disorder. And there's the claim that he heard a mysterious voice. Mm. I couldn't get any more information on what that meant because you don't know if it's an actual auditory hallucination or if it's the person talking to themselves. It's a manifestation of interior dialogue. Right. Interior dialogue is very different from auditory hallucination. And unfortunately, less experienced evaluators do not differentiate that. And especially when it morphs into pop culture and we are pulling articles from news sources about this. Yeah. So another myth is that people with schizoid personality disorder are violent. I mean, we have to address this one here today, right? So violence is not a typical trait of schizoid personality disorder with our example of Robin. So they, like others with this disorder, rarely experience anger. You would see studies associating the disorder with violence have really been able to point out that there are flaws there. The reports lack statistical significance, and there's really no robust link or evidence of schizoid personality disorder and violence. Another myth that comes up sometimes is that individuals with schizoid personality disorder can't function normally. Because here we are describing this person, but I feel like we can all picture this person and we've all seen them either at work or in some other setting, maybe school. So despite their reclusiveness, many, including our example, Robin here, function fairly well. While impaired functioning is a core feature of personality disorders, schizoid personality disorder is often associated with higher functioning. Jobs requiring minimal social contact suit them. Although the loneliness they endure is described as unbearable and inescapable. So myth number four is that schizoid personality disorder can be treated with medication. Unfortunately, no, medication is not a remedy for schizoid personality disorder, nor is medication the go-to foundational treatment for any personality disorder. Sometimes it can help treat the symptoms and more of the cluster B areas that are where people are really just sort of living in a storm of emotion. And this is the opposite. This is a deficit. It's a lack of emotion or an experience of internal emotion that is disconnected from how they move through the world. Individuals with schizoid personality disorder are often lacking insight into their condition. So they don't seek treatment. It's like, well, this is who I am. I don't really see any problem with it. Why would I go and try? It's like, you know, I'm not trying to fit into the parameters of society at large. So why would I go seek treatment, right? Psychotherapy, particularly something like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, has become a mainstay for some aspects of something like any kind of personality disorder, but you have to be very careful about how you apply it because each situation is really going to have a variant to it. Another part of any type of talk therapy is establishing trust and trust with somebody who has schizoid personality disorder. It may be very difficult from their perspective 
to really trust where you're coming from, because if they have a deficit in being able to experience and express their experience of their own emotions, they're certainly going to have a real problem in doing the same for someone sitting across the table from them. That's sort of that mirror experience is a really important part of our childhood development. Yeah, definitely. I can see, you know, maybe them coming to treatment because of like an interpersonal conflict, like maybe with a parent or something like that. And they agree to go and Usually it's going to be because someone else is saying, hey, this is a problem. Yeah, that's where the CBT could actually become Mm -hmm. like quite helpful. If you can establish a relationship with a person who is trustworthy enough. So if a client with schizoid personality disorder, let's say they had an issue at work, they were remanded to treatment. Okay, you got to go do 12 sessions with Dr. So-and-so before you come back. CBT could be really helpful for opening up a discussion about, well, what's a thought? that is rational versus irrational, or what is something that's an eccentric behavior or odd that may be off-putting to your coworkers. So that's a very rarefied situation, but I do want to make that carve out for while treatment is not always an option because treatment is usually voluntary. This might be a way in if it was possible. For sure. So let's turn to the research that actually looks at links for these disorders to violent crime or not. In 2006, researchers Loza and Hannah suggested a link between this disorder and violence and proposed that schizoid personality disorder traits could possibly be linked to other risk factors for violent behavior. This is a really interesting paper because basically it says, hey, we see that there might be a factor, but there is a paucity of research out there. No, I love those $3 <laughs> words, especially paucity is in our, our diagnostic. And when you're writing reports, right. like the clinical thesaurus, I know. paucity of research. And the $3 words are usually your shtick. So. I know. Oh, yeah, you got me. Touche, Dr. Shiloh, touche. Touche is only a $2 word. So right. an additional argument in favor of their thesis is this study that was done by Dr. Michael Stone. And this was in 2005. And I believe this was something he published as a chapter to a book on personality disorders. But his study found that 47% of serial killers met the criteria for schizoid personality disorder, which I was like, I'm sorry, what? Wow. I know that's that's so, that's a big chunk. It is. So this case study involved analyzing a parasite incident using psychiatric examination, standard clinical psychological assessments, and behavioral inhibition and activation scales. The researcher's finding indicates that the perpetrator had schizoid personality disorder and exhibited signs of dissociation during the crime. The conclusions drawn from this analysis suggest that a schizoid personality may lead to brutal offenses when an individual feels threatened, and dissociation can serve as a coping mechanism during traumatic situations. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more on the back end. Yeah, isn't it interesting? Because that almost completely dovetails with our first example of a crime, right? Yep. Now, I have a very different and very specific study that's conducted in 2018, and that investigated the connection between personality disorders and violent crimes or homicides among male prisoners in Greece. Mm -hmm. And this research focused on a sample of 308 male prisoners from both urban and rural prisons. So using diagnostic tools, the research team identified three clusters of personality disorders. So cluster A, which is paranoid, schizoid, and schizotypal, cluster B, which is antisocial, borderline histrionic, narcissistic, and cluster C, which is obsessive compulsive, dependent and avoidant. And the results revealed that while the majority of prisoners had personality disorders, again, that is significant in itself. The majority of the prisoners had personality disorders, particularly from cluster B, not surprised by that at all. The commission of violent crimes and homicides was significantly associated with cluster A personality disorders, specifically in schizotypal personality disorder. So the odds of committing violent crimes and homicides were notably higher for individuals with a personality disorders. Again, correlation is not causation. Right. Right. So we don't want to say in the same way that we've done in the past when we talk about autism spectrum disorder and we show this link and this commonality, 
it's not a direct link. We're just saying that this is very interesting to look at because mm -hmm. it's about what situation and what type of factors, what type of environment. And like you were saying, when someone feels threatened. Well, but we look at that cluster B stat and we're like, oh yeah, of course, antisocial personality disorder, right? Like that's just what we know. It just makes know. sense, right? Yeah. And then you look at how significant the cluster A personality disorder stuff is here with the violent crimes. And it's like, how have we not been talking about this? I mean, I know this is like one study out of Greece, but compounded with all the other studies, of course, is how we start to, yes, take note of this for sure. Right. So looking at that, what's fascinating then is, well, what's the commonality between something like antisocial personality disorder and schizoid personality disorder, because there are some commonalities. They may not be emerging from the same organic structures or the same chemical responses in the brain. So there's something going on where, again, with antisocial personality disorder, we tend to think there's that lack of connection because there's a lack of remorse. Right. But here, we're looking at just this innate lack of connection of, I just don't want to have anything to do with relationships. They're just, they don't mean anything to me. Right. So again, I think that is another buffer, let's put it as that, as connecting with someone in the moment enough not to perhaps perpetrate violence against them. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like I'm kind of veering over into woodly doodly, but in the same way that when I'm working with someone who's in recovery, we always say that the opposite of addiction is connection. Mm. right is connection to others connection to the world around you and this seems to have like an absolute venn diagram overlies like yeah. but what if you can't connect with others by virtue of the brain structure that's and the difference then, it's not a substance yeah yeah so it's not a cause but what if that is the case and then there is a conflict right which again i'm going to touch on in in just a little bit too because we're going to revisit one of these studies in a second. So yeah, while the study out of Greece is very significant, there's another factor at play. People who commit violent crimes have a higher rate of cluster A disorders. However, there are multiple reasons for this. Most of these emerge from co-occurring disorders, which may or may not involve head injury, again, is going to come up later, or mood disorders. And of course, these disorders can be aggravated by the lack of self-care, interest in life or long-term planning, all areas which are driven and controlled by executive functioning parts of the brain. Some of the more commonly co-occurring disorders that we see with schizoid and schizotypal personality disorders are depression, post-traumatic stress, social anxiety disorder, including OCD and substance abuse. So it's not just in a vacuum by itself. There's other things going on. Right. And the truth is getting help and finding treatment is going to be challenging, like we said before, because what's the motivation for that individual to get treatment? When somebody is sheltered off from their own life at large with a rigid or very limited sphere of influence and engagement with outside sources, combined with an inability to plan or care for themselves and an unwillingness to even listen or take in criticism or ideas about self-care and self-improvement, it can be really difficult to convince them to seek help or to even admit that they need it. It is possible, increasingly so, if a clinician can approach the treatment with compassion and patience and engage with the client that will then engender buy-in from the client and understanding. But most importantly, Again, just focusing on there has to be buy-in for the client. What are they going to be getting out of it from their perspective? Is their life going to be any better? Is anything going to improve from going and working in this area? And yeah. believe me, that's hard enough with people <laughs> who aren't diagnosed with anything. Maybe they're just going through a hard time in their life, right. but getting people to admit that they need some support, that can be difficult, right? Yeah. And at some level, like, who are we to say like, oh, if you come do treatment with me, you'll be a better person. <laughs> it's like, right. if, as long as they're not causing harm or suffering, you know, themselves or anyone else, who are we to tell them <laughs> what that looks like? So yeah, it's, that's a conundrum for sure. And individuals with schizoid personality disorders often exhibit limited responsiveness to unstructured and sporadic treatment approaches. So weekly visits with a psychiatrist may not consistently yield positive outcomes. Optimal treatment for schizoid personality disorders typically involves a structured and long-term care approach 
that addresses all of the co-occurring disorders that are happening, which is really ideal whenever you have co-occurring disorders happening, you want to address all of them and sometimes one at a time, especially substance abuse, you need someone to be sober to be able to fully engage in treatment for what the other issues are, right? Right, utilize those tools. It's like if we gotta clear out some of the other things just so you can use the tools that I'm teaching you to address the foundational issue. Yeah, and as you said, you know, a particularly effective therapeutic method is CBT, which if used long form like this, aids individuals in recognizing and modifying just unproductive patterns in their life. Again, if that's something that they want to improve. And the structured approach has demonstrated efficacy in addressing the complexities that we see associated with schizoid personality disorders. So we're going to jump into a big case to round this out, but I want to quickly mention what I'm doing here is I'm referring to a research paper that further examined that work by Dr. Stone. Remember, so this was the case study that where an individual had murdered their parent, they had been diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder, and it had been determined that the perpetrator had experienced peritraumatic dissociation at the time of the offense. So I think this sets up some things to think about in our final high-profile example. So when it comes to dissociation and violence, the research is interesting and wildly varying. And we covered this in our psychogenic amnesia episode, which was episode 93. So if you want to dive into this and you haven't, go back and listen to that. But here is just a little taste. There's a study from 2004 by Holmes and his research group. They found prevalence rates of pathological dissociation anywhere between 9.5% and 49%. And concluded that on average, and that a quarter of prisoners they had studied had or were currently suffering from dissociative symptoms. So we know the causes are diverse, right? From just protecting against the cycle of violence to pure exposure to a traumatic incident. Even if the person themselves caused the traumatic incident, you can still have this phenomenon. Yeah, that's really interesting stuff. And in this case that you're presenting, the researchers that looked at this particular case of parasite, they determined that someone with SPD sometimes becomes a perpetrator of a brutal offense in situations where they feel that they're in danger of punishment and that their personal space is being threatened. Fascinating stuff because that's really quite specific. Dissociation which is activated by the violence or the murder itself can help the murderer protect themselves from the traumatic situation, which has overcome their resources. So that's a little complex, but it's like, I've got to protect myself from the thing that I was triggered into doing. So I'm going to create basically this psychic construct that's holding me away from reality. It's really like a lower, like lighter version of this would be your fight or flight system, right? If you're in a situation that is overwhelming your normal way of functioning or coping, then some other stuff starts kicking in to protect you. Yeah. It's almost like the normal fight or flight is constructed so well that we just kind of do it automatically. And this is an example of maybe those protective things are not there. So it becomes much larger than it would for someone without the diagnosis. And there's also this concept that Gray's reinforcement sensitivity theory can provide us with understanding because it provides a framework for understanding these kind of cases. Yeah, so Gray's theory is biologically based and it considers why the body reacts in the way it does in traumatic events. So they've kind of taken his theory and said, this explains a lot why folks with this disorder who commit violence then experience dissociative amnesia. So the model is based on three basic emotional systems. It's looking at the behavioral inhibition system, the behavioral activation system, and then the fight or flight system, which are constantly trying to regulate and activate in response to things like rage, fear, anxiety, panic, and other negative emotions. So I think this is a fascinating field. (laughs) I mean, it's very specific with this disorder and with violence, but I think it's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, we've been doing the pod for years and we've been working in the field for years. 
So to have something like this come up as a less obvious but just as important overlay for an understanding of violent crime is really fascinating. Actually, the whole topic for this was when we were researching for our last live stream, when we were able to interview author N. Lee Hunt on his book, I Don't Like Mondays. So most people that are listening are going to recognize this as the famous quote by the female school shooter from 1979, Brenda Spencer. Our conversation with N. Lee was just so enlightening. And he's done more research than anyone has on this case and has busted up a lot of the myths about that particular event. And for our Patreon members, that audio is up and it's on the Patreon feed. And also the YouTube video should be up in the next few weeks. So check that out when you can. We don't do a ton of formal structured interviews on the live stream. Yeah. This is one of the ones that, you know, is pretty amazing. Yeah. Definitely. So let's do an overview of Brenda Spencer and the case before we get into her psych evals and diagnoses, just obviously to add some context here. So Brenda was the youngest of three children between her parents, Wally and Dot. They lived in the small San Diego community of San Carlos, right across the street from Garfield Elementary School. She was a small girl and appeared younger than her age and was quite the tomboy, having grown up going out to the desert with her father and other family members, learning how to shoot rifles from a young age, as well as hunting. And her father's family was originally from a totally different part of the country, Arkansas, where that was not terribly unusual to have your kids engage in those recreational activities. But when Brenda was in high school, her parents had what seemed to be a pretty high conflict divorce. And she and the older children ended up remaining with their father, which I think people think is like, what? The dads didn't have custody of the kids back then. What's going yeah. on? But you have to remember her her siblings were older than her. They had really wanted to stay with dad and stay sort of stabilized where they were as they were getting out into the world and working and things like that. So they all just ended up living with dad, continuing to live with dad in the house across the street from the school. And then her mom just moved a few miles away. So... Given the age difference in the siblings and divorce and separation of the parents, it wouldn't be unexpected at all to see that a teen in this kind of situation with all these transitions might come to the attention of authorities or at minimum engage in some problematic behaviors. And this is basically what started happening with her. She started shoplifting from local stores and shops, and there are some reports, although a little bit conflicting about drug and alcohol use, uh, as well as referrals to psychiatric counseling for suicidal ideation, as well as what sort of became described as a withdrawn personality and a very odd presentation. So eventually, she was detained and arrested after breaking into Garfield Elementary School with a male friend and vandalizing the building. Afterwards, she harassed the girls who had been witnesses in that case of vandalism by standing outside their homes and staring at them and their families. Every time she was picked up by the cops, they brought her right back to her father and they sort of, you know, wagged their finger at her with no real consequences. She was, however, required to see a social worker who noted some suicidal ideation and depression, but there was never any high level of concern about homicidal ideation. Yeah, I think it's interesting when we talk to the author, Hunt, you know, he said she did have friends. You know, she was 17 at the time that this crime happens that we're going to talk about in a second. And she had friends and but there was still this kind of odd, distant presentation of hers. And, you know, we don't like to go into physical presentation too much. But during the trial, she was witnessed as being very sullen and not speaking and staring straight ahead and kind of slouched in her chair there. So it's just putting all these things together. And then we'll kind of talk about at the end what we think here. So let's get into this crime. Monday, January 29th, 1979, Brenda tells her father that she's going to stay home from school because she has severe cramps from her menstrual cycle and he allows it. After he leaves for work and the house was all empty, she grabs her 22 caliber rifle, which her father had recently bought her for Christmas, as well as her pellet gun rifle. And what she does is she breaks out two panes of glass out of the bottom of the front door, kind of little diamond shapes, which face directly to the school. And she rests each of the firearms in one of those now empty spaces, locked and loaded, ready to go. 
And as children start arriving for school, she begins unloading the lethal weapon, the 22 caliber rifle at children. Now, this is a lower caliber weapon. It wouldn't have had the big booming sound you hear with an assault rifle of a larger caliber, but maybe like a popping here and there. So being across the street, it was quite confusing. I mean, if parents heard it at all is, you know, they're driving up with their windows rolled up, dropping off their kids. So it really turned into this chaotic scene as children start dropping to the ground, inexplicably bleeding, you know, feeling strange pains in their arms. Once staff kind of realized what was going on and that children were being shot from somewhere, the principal and the janitor ran out to drag children to safety, but they were both fatally targeted and wounded by Brenda. And in total, she fired 36 rounds that day, injuring 11 children, a police officer, and then killing Principal Burton Rag and head custodian Michael Sukar. Children were shot in the limbs and other not such life-threatening areas, but the adults were definitely targeted more lethally. This resulted in an hours-long standoff with SWAT and the crisis negotiation team. Brenda surrendered without further incident, and she was taken into custody. And this just began an enormous amount of legal proceedings, eventually leading to her being tried as an adult and ultimately being incarcerated at the California Youth Authority until she was older. She pleaded guilty in 1980 to two counts of murder. She was sentenced to concurrent terms of 25 years to life in prison. Nine counts of attempted murder were dismissed. She's currently incarcerated at the California Institute for Women in Corona, and she's up for parole in 2024. Yes. All right. So let's back up and get to her forensic psych evaluations. There were a lot of considerations in this case. Remember, although tried in adult court, she was still a young, youthful appearing teen about to serve a very long sentence. So there were also issues of sanity at the beginning, head injury, and fitness to even stand trial. The first assessments that were conducted were for her fitness hearing. And before this was even really to kind of help in determination of if she would be tried as adult or not. And after two psych evaluations were conducted and presented to the court, along with a witness from the California Youth Authority where she was being held, the judge ordered that Brenda was unfit to be treated as a juvie. He ordered her to be scheduled in adult court moving forward. Her attorney fought valiantly to have that ruling overturned. He argued that the psych reports actually stated that she was better suited for a juvenile court. One of those reports stated that Brenda was, quote, not a sophisticated criminal and that she was a sick and very disturbed girl who appeared much younger than her age, but tries to act much older. She shows characteristics of both a psychopathic and schizoid personality, both severe. So both of these reports thought that she could not have a chance at being successfully treated and rehabilitated by the time she was just 23 years old, which 23 was like a weird cutoff in this determination of whether she should be treated as a juvie or not back then in the court system, I mean, treated. So it, it sounds like they were asked to look at that marker of, you know, is five years enough to rehabilitate this young woman. And they said that she would really need more intensive treatment, which would be possible in the juvie system as opposed to the adult Department of Correction system. And one of these reports even stated that her personality and appearance would make her more of a target for abuse within the adult prison system. So despite this, I mean, this is pretty strong evidence. I think the judge went the other way. Yeah. So interestingly, and something well-examined in Hunt's book is that Brenda sustained a head injury as a child after crashing on her bike, which is fascinating because in choosing these two examples, we had no idea that both would have sustained head injuries while riding a bike. This was significant. We have more information on her accident than we do the previous examples. So Brenda blacked out. She was disoriented afterwards. She had memory loss, clearly concussion, right? Oh, yeah. She wasn't taken to the doctor for at least a day. And that only happened when her older sister finally insisted that she be taken, which yeah. says a lot about the parenting, by the way. Sorry, just right. going to drop that in. After this incident, she was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy, which we only bring up because sometimes people try and link epilepsy with violence for which there's no evidence of a link. 
Hunt does cite some really great quotes by neuroscientists and psychologists who noted that the risk of violence during dissociation that occurs with epilepsy is extremely low. I'm so glad he included that because it is fascinating and it's easy to make that leap. But God, he did a great job at really kind of buttoning that up and letting the research speak for itself because I think people could have globbed onto that. Yeah. Eventually, Brenda was also evaluated for insanity as she had pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity at first. Five forensic psychologists and psychiatrists had examined Brenda. The court appointed some as well as her defense team hired some. And the prosecution hired Dr. Ronald Markman, a psychiatrist out of Beverly Hills, who is still practicing to this day. And he concluded that Brenda was legally sane and that eventually that ends up leading to her attorneys talking to the prosecution to start talking about a plea deal. And she does eventually plead guilty. So with what we've covered with schizoid personality disorder and the, you know, the one eval did point out that they think her diagnosis was schizoid personality disorder. I mean, what do we think here? Obviously, we didn't evaluate her. We know she's someone who's right. still around and maybe right. released next year and lives like less than 30 miles from me right now. Yep. Do we think it feels like it fits? Okay, well, let me just offer this. Going back to the idea of not guilty by reason of mental disease or mental defect mm-hmm. or its other component, which is not guilty by reason of insanity. Those are based on the idea of whether or not the individual understands that they're doing something wrong. Yes, at the time of the at the time of the crime. event, right? So what we have here, and I'm just look, I like I we, I have we're just doing way decades later post hoc examination of issues. There are a couple of things that have popped out for me. One is that she, in her act of vandalism, which is not unusual for teens to act nope. out in that way, who goaded who, who came up with the idea. What was the level of the vandalism? That's one thing that I'm not concerned about. Her reaction to being snitched on by the girls Mm. was a deliberate choice to intimidate, even if she didn't understand that she was being intimidating, which is unlikely that she didn't know what impact she was having by standing in front of their houses and staring at them. That's pretty clear, right? The other thing is that, and this hasn't been talked about a lot, but it came up as you were preparing this is... That preparation for the act, she has said in interviews that she really wasn't thinking of people being there. Right. Right. She wasn't really thinking of it as individual targeted victims. Right. She was just engaged in this shooting. So what is about the kicking out of the glass in the door Mm -hmm. to me? And maybe I am completely overreaching. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. That's almost like a scene from a movie. Like a sniper setting up, right? Right. I mean, which is what it was, but. Exactly. It was. That's exactly what it was. But where did she come up with that idea? Was there something that was on television at that time? Was there a movie in the theaters? Was there some exposure to this is what you do when you are deciding to lay in wait? Right. Right. Or lie in wait. Right. So that's what kind of makes this more complex for me is that. You know, the sullenness in which she's described presenting in court, it's problematic because we weren't there. We don't know who's interpreting what she's giving as sullen. Mm -hmm. Was it blank? Was it blunted? Was it flat? Was her affect just non-responsive and somebody interpreted it as being sullen? Sure. Because if she's sullen, that means she actually is presenting an emotion. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things here to take into consideration. What's your take on it? (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, Enley Hunt told us, and and he's been corresponding with her since he wrote his book, that she really claims a good deal of amnesia around the event. So that takes us back to dissociation and, you know, how that's linked with schizoid personality disorder and this being a traumatic event, kind of all twisted up in that. So I think that's really interesting. I think that always comes up forensically as Is that a cop-out? Is that malingering? Is that just a convenient way to not even address questions about the event? Or Um, is the denial of it a defense mechanism for 
what was also a defense mechanism, yeah. that amnesia. Yeah. Yes. I mean, seriously, yeah. that kind of thing, that's not out of the realm of possibility. Right. So, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts. I value the opinions of the mental health professionals that evaluated her to see if she should be treated as a juvie or an adult. You know, that's way at the beginning of this. And then everything else kind of led to where she's at now. I just don't think I have enough information. I would love to have had more info to know how the schizoid personality disorder criteria was met for the evaluator at that time. But then also they say she's psychopathic and schizoid. What an interesting combination for this event that eventually took place in her behavior. So I would love to know more about those two together. But I think I, I'm also going to trust that, yeah, they evaluated her and she met the criteria. And what we see on the outside is kind of mildly interesting you know, again, we can't do a whole lot with just observations or observations that were done by a news reporter in 1979. Yeah. yeah. And then that also, again, as you are so great about pointing out in previous episodes is psychopathy is not a diagnosis right. in itself. Right? right. So like you don't, it's just, you know, we need to get the information more purely from the source to really pull this apart. And, you know, our field continues to expand and develop and evolve you know, in, in months yeah. with the revelation of new information as opposed to decades ago. So, yeah. Indeed. So you seem to have pulled a really great entertainment example for us. I love this. You guys, it's like, it's really kind of an obscure film. It's called May from 2002, starring the actress Angela Bettis. Angela Bettis was in this amazing TV remake of Carrie that was really good. I think it was on oh, sci-fi. Yes. Barely anybody saw it. And it was more faithful to the book, the original Stephen King work. And it's okay. really good. But May is a psychological horror movie directed by Lucky McKee. Like I said, back in 2002, and the main character played by Bettis is May Canaday. She's very socially awkward, isolated young woman working in a veterinary clinic in LA. And she has a lot of problems forming relationships that you get some flashbacks on what kind of a troubled childhood she had. Mm. And now it starts veering into creepy because like her only source of companionship is this doll in a glass case, which oh was a boy. gift from her mother. And she talks to the doll to give it her deepest secrets. So her disconnection from the world because of her inability to kind of relate to people and her odd and eccentric behaviors, she becomes fixated on creating the perfect friend. And she starts collecting body parts from the people that she thinks are special. And she starts to stitch them together in this sort of Frankenstein way to form her ideal companion. Ooh. And there's no, there's no supernatural aspect to it where she brings it to life, but you just see someone really sliding into madness. And mm. she does present with a lot of this personality disorder, but she does want to connect as opposed to not being interested in connecting, but great performance worth seeing, I think. Oh, it sounds really good. That was never, ever on my radar. Putting it on the list for next year's Halloween yeah. <laughs> horror movies. Yeah, there's some other fictional characters who exhibit what we can say are some schizoid behaviors. Dexter, Morgan from Dexter. I mean, yes, and a lot of other things. Right. Uh, yeah. What I mean. Well, I just think it's actually, in a way, it fits schizoid more than it does psychopath. Oh, you know, tell is, me about that. Well, because the schizoid is his, like, there's this idea that he is, has this internal monologue in the first couple of seasons, which is a lot more prevalent. And you see him questioning, you know, based on his relationship with his dad, he's questioning what the right thing to do is because he doesn't have this particular experience with the world around him, with the experience yeah. of emotion. So later on, we see, you know, that there is psychopathy there, which is a, you know, ASPD exponentially, but there's also this sort of schizoid separation from the yeah. world around him. And then Definitely. there's also Gollum from Lord of the Rings. You know, he has Tell a Tell me traumatic, about that because I know well, nothing about that. <laughs> Gollum has a horrifically tragic background and he's mm -hmm. been influenced by a negative force. You know, in this case, it's the ring which has driven him insane. I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, but it came from a list, a listicle that was generated. I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Okay, that fits. Well, what about Annie Wilkes from the Stephen King novel, Misery? Yes. I mean, we have Kathy Bates, right? In the, morning, or the movie, which is fantastic. But then 
the series you and I loved, Castle Rock, where actress Lizzie Kaplan totally nails this, I think. Well, what makes that so great? I'm just, I, I am bummed that series did not continue because it was such a creative idea to combine all these different stories that Stephen King has in his universe. And this was a combination of Salem's Lot and Misery, but you get the backstory on Annie Wilkes mm -hmm. and you see her working in a hospital setting as a nurse. And Lizzie Kaplan just shows all these schizoid yeah. things, everything that we've talked about today. Really fascinating stuff. So I thought that was a, a great one. Yep. All right, Dr. Shiloh. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for this episode. We really got some interesting stuff in here today. Yeah. I hope folks find this interesting and maybe we need to, you know, whip open that DSM every once in a while and see what hasn't been something that we've talked about sort of right. over and over that are surprising like this, where yeah. there is this interesting research on the link to violence and crime. So, all right. Well, with that, everyone, we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, guys. Bye, folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks. <laughs>